All right. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hand and feet. And while they Still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. He told them, this is what is written. Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day in repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word and may God um, give us understanding of it. Let's bow together, please. Gracious God, and Father, thank you for bringing us together this Easter morning. No, no one is here by accident. We are all here by your appointment. Please open our minds so that we can understand the scriptures. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. The Cappadocian monks, they built a mausoleum on the grounds of the Church of Santa Maria de la Cocina in Rome. That was normal. That's what monks did. However, in the 16th century, one of the monks decided that the mausoleum needed to be redecorated using, are you ready for this? Using the bones of his fellow monks once they had died. Now, that's not normal. So if you were there, you'd see a half a dozen chambers have been made with the uh, rib cages of humans, monks. Shrines made of human skulls and leg bones. Ceilings, if you looked up, you'd see forearm after forearm. Wall hangings hung with human vertebrae. Chandeliers made with the bones of, of human hands and feet. And to top it all off, midway there's a complete skeleton of a Cappadocian monk dressed as you would suspect the Grim Reaper. And along the back wall of the mausoleum as you exit, there's this huge sign. It's written in many, many different languages, which reads, this is what it reads. We were once like you. Soon you will be like us. So apparently 4,000 monks contributed their bones between the years 1528 and 1870. 
And I was thinking, can you imagine every time a monk got really sick? You know, someone in the order would be like, oh, you're sick. Terrific. You know, we needed a leg bone for the south wall. There was this big gap. Or what if they got sick, but then they were getting better and they were like, oh, terrific. (laughs) Talk about being selfish, you know. But as I was doing my research, this is what I discovered. The very day that the researcher was just walking through the mausoleum doing what researchers do, he found these massive group of kids just running all over the mausoleum in a burial chamber, right? And he was so stunned by this that he begins to interact with their parents who, who were there and he was asking them questions, pretty much the same question over and over again. Why did you bring your kids here? I mean, why did you bring your kids here? There's a children's museum, you know, like six miles down the road. Why did you bring them here? But you see, the hand of God was being laid to bear on this gentleman. Because the answer that he was getting over and over again was this. Jesus is able to handle death. And this means you and I can handle it with him. Jesus is able to handle death. This means you and I can handle it with them, him. And these parents told the gentleman that they brought their kids there so that they could look at death unafraid and teach them, again, Jesus has handled death and this means you and I can handle it with him. And as you might suspect, the the researcher who was an unbeliever was just struck by this. And some of the parents went on to tell him, we are not afraid to be here, nor do we want our children to be afraid to see the skeletons, the skulls and sign because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, he's defeated death. I mean, that's the Easter message. Our greatest enemy, the one enemy that there is no way on our own we can defeat, has been defeated because of Jesus. Now, on one level, we all know that the path of death isn't wonderful. That would be silly. The Bible speaks to this when it says the body which is sown in, in dishonor. That's our death. The Greek word for dishonor is it's degrading, right? Or another place the Bible says our lowly bodies, talking about um, the process of death, whether it be a terminal disease or a slow disintegration. There's nothing fantastic about that. Death isn't natural. Death is God's penalty for our rebellion towards him. However, for the Christian, what comes after death is part of what makes it possible for us not to fear death. It's the promise of a future grace, a bodily resurrection that God will indeed raise every human who's ever died and those who are his through faith. Glorious transformation, those who are not a frightful but fair sentencing. So as we consider the words from this gospel we've just read, since death and eternity is at stake here, we need to think carefully through this. Jesus is making it very, very clear how we decide in time will matter for eternity. And there's no second chance past death. Now this passage that we read is from the gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor. His name can be found not only in the Bible, but lots of other historical books. And as a doctor, you would understand the need for, or he would understand it, if you would, the need for investigation and study and careful inquiries uh, to bring the truth to light. 
In fact, he tells us in the opening chapter of the gospel that this record came as a result of his careful investigation given in an orderly account so that when his readers actually read the gospel, they can be sure that what is being said there is true. And that's important. His, his writing came as a result of a careful investigation. This is not his personal opinion. This isn't a Christian propaganda. Which will help a person who will actually read the gospel. Especially as you read it and you see, you know what? There's some historical parts. So there's real names and there's real places. And there's a real context of all the political and, and social minutia of that day. Which, by the way, archaeologists have identified and historians have confirmed time and time again is true, right? So this isn't fantasy. And so you move from the historical to the supernatural parts of the gospel, which are there, right? So you have a Jesus walking on the water, and you have a Jesus who heals all kinds of diseases. We have a Jesus who, you know, feeds 5,000 people with basically a Lunchable. And you have a Jesus who raises the dead and is risen from the dead. So it's unmistakable as you honestly read the Gospels that both the supernatural and the historical tied together. And you can't separate them. To try to separate them would be trying to like take, taking the chocolate out of chocolate milk. It's possible. Some people have tried, right? Some people have separated the historical and the supernatural either by ignoring it or, you know what, they say, that's silly, we're not going to believe it. Or even some religious people, unfortunately... They're embarrassed by it. The cross and the blood and the blood and the cross. So they say, hey, look, you know what? We live in the 21st century. We're so much smarter than the folks back then. And besides, you know, they needed that kind of hocus pocus stuff to deal with things. Uh, They didn't have Doppler radar, right? They couldn't Google anything. There was no Starbucks there. When they had to chill out, they could go chill out. And they couldn't say, Alexa, order me a pizza, right? So, so, you know, we are way past all that hocus pocus stuff. Way past that. So, in either their superiority or their ignorance or their embarrassment, they simply avoid or dismiss all the supernatural parts. However, and I want you to think this through. Wouldn't most people, especially the skeptic, be thinking on some level, somewhere in their mind, as they lay on their deathbed, man, if I could somehow get past this, if there was some supernatural act outside of the bounds of nature to save me from death, then I would, I'd take it in a heartbeat. I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption. Most people don't go, yay, when they find out from their doctor they have stage 4 lymphoma and they only have a few weeks to live. Still, there are some who say, you know what, if you could just take the miracles out of Christianity, take the supernatural parts out of Christianity, give me a Christianity with no difficult parts at all, no hard parts, then you know what, more people would join the team. But loved ones, and by the way, you are loved ones. If you have a Christianity with no miracles, no supernatural parts, no difficult parts, based on the gospel record, you do not have Christianity, at least a biblical Christianity. Archbishop Donald Colgan from the previous generation, listen to what he wrote. Take away the cross, 
the resurrection and the supernatural from Christianity and you have a poor, lifeless, maimed thing left. Just one more religion in the weary list of religions which have come and gone through the centuries. So this morning, unashamedly, we're going to tackle what the Bible has to say here. We're going to understand the historical and the supernatural. They're inseparable. And we're going to do it in a way that I was taught a long time ago. Um, When you read your Bible, one of the things you can do is ask yourself three questions. Here they are. What? So what? Now what? If you've got a worship folder, you can see in the back there, that's our points. What? As in what is being described in this chapter 24? Then the so what? uh, Moving from description to the implication of what we're going to hear. Then I ask myself, now what? As in, is there some application that I can enjoy? Is there something I need to consider or apply in these verses that are written? Okay, that's our framework. What? So what? Now what? And by the way, we're going to spend most of our time on the what. So when we get through with point what, number one, what? You look at your watch and you go, holy cow. Don't worry about it. I promise. We're going to be out of here, you know, as usual, maybe a a couple of minutes over. All right? All right. Number one, what? Okay, what is happening? Well, in the first 12 verses that Shandy read, um, the ladies go to the tomb of Jesus in the morning and they find it empty. So the Jesus who was buried in the tomb is no longer in the tomb. And this is one of the issues that historians and skeptics, they have to deal with. No matter who checked, how or when, it is clear that in Jerusalem, On the Sunday following the death and burial of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, his tomb was empty. Now, Luke in chapter 23 is careful to tell us, and this is important, that there was a man named Joseph who asked for the body of Jesus that he might bury it. Because the usual plan for a crucified man was that crucified bodies were not buried. Instead, after the crucifixion, they just kind of just left their crucified bodies there to rot. And so there were vultures and there were wild dogs and they would rip the flesh off the, of the bodies and the, the remains. It's sad, but the remains of these men were all over the place. In other words, typically no one got a burial. Not so with Jesus. Jesus was buried and they knew this. Therefore, it's hard to imagine anyone in Jerusalem would be proclaiming an empty tomb If that were not the case, for if it wasn't the case and the ladies were lying, then the easiest thing to do would have been to say, okay, let's go to the tomb to check and see if what you're saying is true. Or they could have just checked the public record. I mean, people do that kind of thing all the time. If if they think they're being lied to, they go and check. They check the file, they check the record, they check the tapes, whatever. And we are told even the Jewish religious leaders had to invent a story Because they understood the tomb of Jesus was empty. They knew it. So they were forced to conclude that something strange had happened. Because there was no body in that tomb. And the reaction wasn't, oh, praise the Lord. No, these guys were the enemies of Christ. Religious enemies of Christ. It happens all the time. So another gospel writer tells us that they paid some money to some soldiers. And they said, you know what? Make up a story that the disciples had come to steal the body of Jesus. So that's our first what. We have an empty tomb. But we also have an eyewitness reports. And and you heard it. It was these ladies. The ladies who were the key witness in each of the four gospel records. But there's a huge problem with the ladies. Okay? I can hear my mother's voice in my head. A problem with the ladies? Joseph Michael Franzone? You know, what's the problem with the ladies? 
And so I would say to my mother, mother, calm down, calm down, listen to the context. In that time and in that place, the public witness of a woman would would be a tremendous problem for this reason. A woman's testimony would have been invalid in the court of law. So you couldn't and you wouldn't call in your defense uh, into your courtroom a woman as that would have been completely useless. Which is why, and you heard that, when the ladies tell the disciples, I hope your Bible's open, the tomb is empty, the reply was, verse 11, basically, whatever, right? This seemed like nonsense. That's what it said to the disciples. Literally, this is silly talk. We're not going to listen to any woman. So here's the question you should ask. What's going on here? Since skeptics often write articles and books and commentaries of people saying, you know what, the disciples just made up this story. They just made up the story. Now, here's the question you should ask yourself. Why in the Dickens, if you were inventing a story, would you use as your key witness for the defense those whose testimony, because of their sex, would have been deemed invalid? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Now, my guess is that a lot of you probably watch those legal dramas on on uh, Netflix or Hulu or cable, right? The only one that I could come up with was L.A. Law. And I googled L.A. Law and found out the show was over in 1994. And I was like, man, Joe, <laughs> you need to watch a lot more television. So you may know this term. It's a legal term. It is qui bono. Qui bono. And this is what it means. When you're trying a case and you're calling witnesses, one of the questions that you'll ask yourself is qui bono. Who benefits? In other words, is there some benefit to this person to take a certain line, saying certain things in a court of law in order to secure a verdict in their favor? Is there some future benefit then for the disciples? Is, is, or they, will they give evidence against themselves? So take that legal question, ask it here. Was there any benefit at all for the disciples of Jesus Christ to go down the line which says, you know what, the ladies are our first witness that we're going to call to the stand to say that the tomb of Christ is empty and Jesus is alive. Who benefited there? Did these men become wealthy? Did they become popular? Did they become significant? Absolutely not. Their life was marked by pain, by suffering, and by death. So to what benefit? Qui bono? What is the personal benefit to them if this was all a lie? There would be none. Oh, someone says, well, you know what? Uh, We see that kind of psychotic religious stuff happening all the time. People become martyrs all that time for their fanatical uh, religious beliefs. Buildings go down because of people's uh, fanatical religious beliefs. Agreed. Agreed. But those martyrs die for themselves. They're, they're dying to secure something for themselves. So either it's, as in the Muslim faith, they're trying to secure paradise, paradise with lots and lots of girls. That's what they say. Or in the Buddhist case, nirvana. Or maybe in Mormonism, a uh, planet all their own with, with, again, more girls. Look it up. It's weird. The disciples here in Luke, most of them would become martyrs Besides the fact they're on the ground level of the thing and and they would know quite easily this is a made-up story. This was fiction. Besides that, they did not die to secure something. They did not die to secure something. They are willing to die because they've been confronted by someone. 
And that someone was the risen Jesus Christ. And it changed them. And even in that, don't throw out your brain and say, oh, it was their love for Jesus which turned their hearts. No, I mean, we read the text. It's more than that. We have to do something with this sudden change of these men, right? Read the text. They're confronted by an empty tomb. They're confronted by this eyewitness report. However, in that moment, verse 11, gosh, I hope your Bible's open and on your lap. Verse 11, they think the lady's report is nonsense. And the best one of them can do is verse 17. All they can do is wonder what happened. So there's a German scholar of early Christianity and Judaism. He's thinking through this. He's a historian, and also he's a skeptic. He's not a Christian. And he's trying to come to terms with the fact that these disciples of Jesus, after the crucifixion, they go into hiding, right? So they go from hiding on a Friday night, not believing really on Easter morning, to a few weeks later preaching the gospel, open air in the streets. Jesus is alive. He's your only hope in life and death. Uh, get right with God through Jesus Christ, or your eternal destiny is, is done. How does that happen? So this is what he writes. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based on auto-suggestion, a a self-delusion, self-suggestion, or even selfishness, without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. That's honest. That helps me. Because as you process this out for yourself, and you really should, right? Because your eternal destiny is at stake. You should be honest enough to admit how one deals with with this kind of stuff depends on the evidence. But it also depends on their kind of presuppositions. What they carry with them and how they understand the world. For example, if you're here today and you believe that the laws of nature exist only in themselves... And that behind the laws of nature, there's no lawgiver, there's no God. Then it would be very understandable for you to say, you know what? There's no resurrection because I would have to explain it constrained by the laws of nature. And I've never seen a person alive from the dead. However, if you believe that there is a lawgiver, that there's a God, that he's established the world, and it is the way he says it is, then you can say happily, this evidence here confirms That Jesus really is alive. And I don't want you to say, well, science has already disproven this. It hasn't. And here's why. And just put on your thinking cap, right? I know this isn't a, you know, a sermon and the little boy found his puppy and everybody was happy with Jesus. I understand that. Okay? So science deals with the observable and repeatable. It's called empirical evidence. Therefore, science has nothing to say concerning truth when it comes to matters which are by definition unique and unrepeatable. Now, please understand that. Science deals with the observable and the repeatable. So they're able to run experiments again and again to see truth, to search for truth. That's good. It's incredibly helpful to our world. However, science can say nothing concerning truth when it comes to matters which are by definition unique and unrepeatable, like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a unique and unrepeatable event which cannot be um, experimented on, if you would, by science again and again and again. But you still have eyewitness accounts. So what do you do? Well, you must say to yourself, 
Science is not the only discipline with the right to be heard and to confirm what is true and what is not true. That's very, very important. Science is not the only discipline to confirm to us what is true and what is not true. Journalism can do this. History can do this. Archaeology can do this. They can investigate with the tools of their own discipline and find out what is true and what is not true. Hence, the gospel word on page witness. That's our first what? The morning, the ladies at the empty tomb. Then you have our second what? The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And again, that was read very well. And here I want, I want to deal with just one thing. The two disciples make their way down the road. Jesus comes alongside them. They don't recognize Jesus. That's by design. After a conversation with Jesus about the day's events, the two disciples say, essentially, verse 21, this, this, whole, thing, this whole Jesus thing is over with. We had hope that he was the one. In other words, Jesus is dead. It's already on the third day. Everything's lost. All hope is gone. And Jesus kindly says to them, you see verse 25, Jesus is so polite, isn't he? You fools. <laughs> You're so slow. <laughs> if it was my dad, he would say, you idiots, right? You don't believe your Bible. What does Jesus do? He gives them a really long sermon and explains from the whole scripture, the Old Testament, that it, about him, and they break bread and he opens their eyes. Now, I want you to notice the wonder of it all because Jesus doesn't go theatrical on him, does it? He doesn't just jump right in front of him and go, Shazam, guys, it's me, right? Halakazam, it's me. What does he do? Verse 27, he gives them a Bible study and he breaks bread with them. By golly, that sounds a lot like a church service, a really, really long message and communion based on what? Based on the word of God. The words of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Because the confidence of heaven is in the word of God. The confidence of heaven is in the word of God. If you want to know God. If you want to consider God. If you know, want to know what God is up to. Read the Bible. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, so theatrics. You know the Shazam stuff. That's not how people come to believe. It can help point the way. In some cases, but that's not happening here. Jesus aims for burning hearts and stirred minds through the preaching of his word. Think with me through this. This is Jesus. He's not trying to, to ramp up their emotions. So we have an empty tomb. We have eyewitnesses. We have this kind of Emmaus Road Bible lesson. The final what is in the evening in the upper room, verse 33. The two go seven miles to Jerusalem to tell the 11 disciples he's alive, only to discover that their thunder is taken from them, verse 34, that they're already talking about the fact that Jesus appeared to Simon Peter. Okay, now let me help you here. In the perplexity faced by the women in the garden, the answer is given in the words that Jesus spoke. Read the text, verse 6. The angel says, remember his words. Remember what he told you. And then the record says, verse 8, and they remembered the words that he has spoken. So their perplexity, if you would, is met by the word of God. On the road to Emmaus, their misery and sadness is addressed by Jesus as he gives them the word of God. He teaches them about him from the scriptures. When you come to verse 36, you see it there. And all the uncertainty, which is still there, 
right? Because they still have trouble believing uh, in the risen Christ. The answer, again, is found when Jesus opens up the word and he gives an expositional lesson of the entire Old Testament, verse 45. Then Jesus opens their minds so they can understand the scripture. He told them, this is what is written. Do you get this? He wants minds stirred first so that belief can be enjoyed. Right? Think through that. Mind stirred so that belief can be enjoyed and belief can be grounded in something that's real. It's not fantasy. It's real. Takes us to our second point. So what? And here is the so what? The, the implications of the resurrection. Jesus makes it very, very clear. Look, guys, if you're going to understand me, then it's all going to begin with my word. If you're going to understand me, it's all going to begin with my word. Thus it is written. And what he's saying is this, if you read the scripture, right, to them that would have been the Old Testament, if you read it, this is what you're going to find out. And this is the second time Jesus did this, verse 47, Christ will suffer, he will rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to every nation, beginning at Jerusalem. You get that? The historical and the supernatural right there in that little verse, all tied together, right? In other words, read the Bible right And you're going to discover, one, that the whole thing is about Jesus. Two, it's about his good news to the world. Three, you don't have to leave your brain in your back pocket to believe in Christ. Four, you don't have to act weird. You know, sometimes you see religious people kind of, you know, I've seen them above my bedpost last night. It was an Easter miracle. You don't have to do that. Just read the Bible. It is an alive book. And you'll discover the whole thing is about Jesus Christ. So I want you to see, this is how much God loves you, right? He comes from every direction to try to help you see Jesus is alive. He's going to return and the judgment is real. Eyewitness, empty tomb, historical reference, supernatural occurrence, intellectual considerations, theological lessons, all of which are grounded in what? His word, the Bible. He comes from every direction to help us understand this. It is true. Jesus is alive, he's alive, and it's not fantasy, and it's not fairy talk, and it's not, you know, just to get us through the day, it's to take us to eternity. I was reading this again this morning at about 5.30, my mother-in-law popped in my head, because this is the kind of thing my mother-in-law would do when, when we would go over to eat, you know, like Easter and Thanksgiving, so she would make dinner, and she knew that some people liked enchiladas with no onions and a lot of cheese, so by golly, she'd make a no onion a lot of cheese platter, and then she knew that some people like lots of onions but, um, and lots of cheese, and so she'd make lots of onions and lots of cheese, and then she knew people didn't like any onions or any cheese. And why did she do that? It's your mother-in-law. Because she loved us. She wanted to get everybody at the table and nobody, you know, grumbling and complaining. Nobody have to pick the onions and cheese out. That's what's happening here. That is what is happening here. It's only in the word of God. When that is explained, are you able to believe the son of God is alive? Read the text. It's only in Jesus' teaching. The scriptures, do the lights come on from them? And even when he stands right before them, verse 37, they think he's a ghost. That's the so what here. Just as the resurrected Christ had to teach the word of God to his disciples in order to believe Everyone who follows Christ in turn must listen to the scripture being taught. 
in order that they might believe. That's why church life is so important. That's why church life is so important, a routine church life. Because when you open the Bible, this is not, you know, all about, here's a few tips to live better. This is taking the words of Jesus Christ, which we know to be true, and we take them to heart, and we take them to the world. And so people say, well, why do you have to tell everybody about Jesus, right? You know, why can't you just keep it to yourself? You've got a nice little group here, just keep it the way it is. Well, because we're not allowed to do that. My king, our king, told us to tell everybody we know that he's alive. The gospel is to be proclaimed to everybody, everywhere, because there's a judgment coming, and God so loved the world that he sent his son so that the judgment can be a happy day and not a miserable day. And what do we say to the world? Verse 47, Jesus died, and Jesus rose, and Jesus is king. Therefore, you've got to repent and receive forgiveness from him. So I want to apologize. I want to apologize when people turn Christianity into a political message. You know, we need, we need to go back to the good old days where men were men and, and girls were girls. Or, you know what, ladies? Uh, your, excuse me, your skirt's too short. Uh, guys, your hair's too long. And your cars are way too nice. And you listen to what kind of music? What's wrong with you? I mean, that's not the gospel. Repent. Change your mind. Change your minds about who Jesus is. Change your mind about what he's done in his life and death and resurrection. Turn from the wrong thing. Turn to the right thing. Turn to the real thing. Sorry about that. And turn to Jesus Christ. Realize that in his death, it wasn't an example. He was becoming our substitute. He was dying in the place of sinners. Who are the sinners? Well, you're looking at one, right? I don't tell the truth. I get envious. I get jealous. I get spiteful. I have dirty thoughts. I can't keep the Ten Commandments fully every day. And I want you to see here the issue is not um, a psychological issue. It's a moral issue. So if someone tells you Christianity is just about feeling better, and so I hope you came here today to feel better, well, I promise you that they haven't read the Bible or they've misread the Bible. Because the issue in the Bible is so clear. Jesus said it many times in Luke 24. We are in the wrong. And Jesus is the only one who can put us in the right. And if Jesus doesn't do what he does, then our condition is absolutely hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. So that in his death, he shows us true love. I will infect myself with your sin. And in his resurrection, he shows us he has power and ability to save and secure our salvation. Because nobody can be saved by a dead Jesus. Nobody can be saved by a dead Jesus. What? Number one, descriptive. Uh, This is what happened at the resurrection. Historical, supernatural, tied together. So what? Informative. This is what they, what we, what uh, they were to believe, what we are to believe, and this is what they were to do, and this is what people who follow Christ are to do. Finally, the so what, or not the so what, excuse me, the now what, right? What are we going to apply or enjoy in light of all this? Now, here's the question. You come here today, either you're trusting in your own morality or you're trusting in God's mercy. To trust in our own morality is simply to be human, right? As long as I grade myself against people who are a lot worse than I am, then I'll continue to feel pretty good about myself. And I, if I feel pretty good about myself, then it must be that I'm good with me and I'm good with God. So I'm all right. You know the song by Kenny Loggins, I'm all right, nobody got to worry about me. 
as opposed to trusting in God's mercy, which calls for a, a peculiar honesty with ourselves. An, an honesty where you, and you talk to yourself and you're so honest, you say, you know what, I am not all right. And I can't make myself right. I've tried for years. So I'm going to need to ask God for mercy. I need help. I need Jesus Christ. Now this may be too simple, so I apologize. Most of us have lived long enough to know um, that people in the public eye, when they go on the line that says, you know what? I am very, very moral, and I am very, very clean, and what's wrong with the rest of America? Why aren't they moral, and, and why aren't they clean, and we've got to have family values, and I'm a family value guy. And then what happens usually? We find out that they're not so great, and they're not so moral, and they're actually dirty, and they don't just have one family, they've got a few families. That happens all the time. And the reason why I tell you that is the first step in the gospel is to feel bad. To feel bad so that the next step needed is that you can feel good. Feel bad. Be honest. I'm bad. I can't make myself good. I've tried for years. But in this Savior Jesus, he promises me forgiveness and he will make me good. Loved ones, we all need a Savior. Have you ever actually said, Jesus, I need you to forgive me and I need you to be merciful to me? Because there's nothing in the Bible which tells us that forgiveness is automatic. If forgiveness was automatic, then why would I need to be doing this? I just wasted 40 minutes of your time. Forgiveness is not automatic, but it is free. It's confessional and it's relational. Confessional, repent and believe. Relational, you become united to Jesus Christ. It's just like a marriage. right? So when we got married... On that great day, we didn't say, okay, honey, check back with you later. We didn't do that. No, it was going to be a sleepover every night until death does its part, right? We're going to hold hands. I'm going to love you. You're going to love me. Let's start a family, breakfast in bed. If I make the breakfast in bed, it's a relationship. And sure, you know, we don't know everything about each other in the beginning, but by golly, you go back to the day when you said, I do, and off you went together in holy matrimony, a union a relationship together forever. Let me close with this, and I thank you for your patience. This is what Jesus Christ offers you in repentance and faith. Rest from your striving, a new, fresh start, forgiveness, promised care, heaven, eternal life with him, no condemnation ever from him, a job description, worship service, going out and telling others about him, a life filled with wonderful privileges and a life filled with serious but awesome responsibilities, again, as you acknowledge your need to repent and believe. And let's not kid ourselves. Death is the destiny of every one of us here. We cannot hide from that. But for us who believe in Christ, death is just a quick step. Then we instantly wake up in the arms of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, this world will end. And everything which seems strong to you here, it's going to prove untrue. It's going to prove untrue. And you're going to have to think through that. I'm done. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray together.
Now to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, be glory forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Go enjoy some of that breakfast there.